You're listening to a podcast produced by Kayama Community Radio. Gabby is a freelance writer, novelist and recovering teacher who lives in Marimbula on the New South Wales South Coast. Gabby has recently published her novel, The Things That Matter Most, a story about a school, the kids, the teachers, the parents, in a place where working demands increase and secrets threaten to be exposed and where each staff member struggles to recall the things that matter most. Lionel Merrick stumbled into my heart like a kid late for class. Then the whole book swept in after him, gut-wrenching and important. That was uh, Trent Dalton's take on your book, which is a lovely commendation. Dear Parents is a book you wrote in 2020, Letters from the Teacher to Your Children, Their Education and How You Can Help. And you wrote a book, Teacher 2018, a powerful and moving memoir about how the current system is letting down children and parents and breaking dedicated teachers. It's been described as devastating and heartbreaking. It's such an important subject, Gabby. Let's first talk, though, about the great days in teaching. You know, those wonderful moments where you know you're connecting with the kids in the class and you see their world expanding. Mm. Let's have your take on that. Yeah, I'm always interested when I speak to teachers that have more experience than me that have been in the classroom even longer than I was. Uh, And I always like to ask them, when do you think was the golden decade or the golden years of teaching? And every teacher has different um, recollections of that and when when things were, were really good. But for me, I really always go back to my first few years of teaching because whilst they were super, super challenging, because I don't think any teacher goes into the classroom confidently feeling like they know what they're doing. But even through that challenge, I really felt as though I was making a difference and that there was just time enough for me to connect with my students Mm. and to really get to know them and figure out where they're at and what they needed for their next step. I have, you know, memories of teaching in the very early 2000s and sitting down with a class of kids and saying, what do we want to learn this term? What are we interested in? And, of course, I'd come in with a basic mud map of what we were going to learn. And, of course, a curriculum still existed and we were definitely going to follow that. But it was really nice to sort of engage in some student-led learning and just to, you know, figure out what each particular group of kids was interested in in knowing about and Mm. I think that was sort of back in the day where we had time as teachers to consider what matters so we Mm. were able to think with the kids what matters what's interesting to us here in this community and for kids of this age I've got a troubling sense that now in education rather than giving teachers time to think about what matters we're constantly looking for what works yeah. And policymakers and administrations are just sort of saying to us, here's what works, this spelling program, do it. Here's what yeah. works, you know, this software program, do it. And we lose a lot of nuance and we lose a sense of the complexity of our learners when we're just looking for what works. So, yeah, mm. I, I have beautiful memories of my earliest years of teaching where there was time enough to build relationships with my learners and to really meet them at their point of need. That's when I think about teaching and those, um, the the good old days of teaching for me, they're the memories that I return back to. What I'm hearing is time when you had time. Yes. Yes. And talk to any teacher today 
and they don't have time. They don't. That's the thing yeah. they don't have. So you were teaching for 15 years. In an average teaching mm-hmm. day, how much do you think was looking after welfare of the kids and how much was teaching them stuff? Yeah, that's such a great question, Joe. I think um, it would actually be a very interesting um, study if there's anyone out there looking to do a PhD <laughs> on what, yeah. the, what the ratio is of care to to teaching. And it is something that I, I feel as though they're, they're both intertwined. There's that old saying, don't tell me what you know until you show me that you care. And yeah. so... To be a good teacher, you have to show the learners in front of you that you're interested in them and that you care for their well-being and you want them to feel safe and secure so they can be vulnerable and take risks and learn. Mm -hmm. But I feel as though the question you're asking hints more at that idea of a particular kind of care that teachers are expected to do now that is beyond that relationship building to enable learning. It's more a care that um, speaks to unmet needs Mm. Um, a care around mental health, whether the students have got enough food in their in their belly to learn, whether they've felt safe enough the night before to come to school, whether they've had enough sleep, the care that's around managing and learning behaviours and manners and all those sorts of things. And I'm I'm feeling that, and, and my experience in my last few years of teaching showed me that uh, teachers are expected to do more and more of that kind of care. And it is probably a care that once belonged um, in the domain of parents and in the home and and wider than that, in the community, there there would be expectations as to how our kids would behave and um, boundaries would be set and, you know, breaching of boundaries would be followed through. It seems to me that a lot of that has fallen away, that a lot of that care and that teaching of behaviours and that managing of mental well-being is now the domain of the teachers. I feel as though parents are feeling sometimes a little bit lost in how to parent well and yeah. how to, um, you know, how to set boundaries and to have um, parameters around their kids and their behaviour. And, you know, it's a post-COVID world as well, so that's, that's a tricky mm-hmm. space for parents to be in. But in... In feeling um, a little bit vulnerable around that, I really believe that parents have shifted that responsibility and passed it over to the school. You know, the teachers will sort them out. And that means that if we have to look at it in a ratio, I feel as though much of a teacher's time is spent dealing with the care that that students need you know like I would probably argue up to 80 or 90 percent of a teacher's time particularly on some students can be spent uh, on that care and look for some students keeping them safe and happy at school is actually the end game you're some kids come to school and they're literally unable to learn anything because basic needs are not being met at home and outside of the school and with kids like that that ratio would be even higher then you're meant to fit a curriculum in and teaching to that. Yes. It's, uh, yes. This is just not Somewhere talked about around the edges. enough. <laughs> yeah, it's just not talked about enough, the welfare that teachers do, I think. Your love of teaching and your enthusiasm for how it can be fun, nurturing experience for our kids shows in your writing, yet you've also been quoted as saying you didn't leave teaching, teaching left you and 
on your website, your profile states you're a recovering teacher. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so when I think back on those early few years, maybe the first decade of my teaching life, which was around, you know, from about 1999 through to 2009, 2010, I did really love teaching and I was so passionate about it and without sounding like an egomaniac I was very good at it I I know that about myself I don't need a professional standard to tell me that um Mm -hmm. I know I was a very good teacher I could see it in the growth of my students and the way that they responded to me and the learning the gains that they were making in their learning what started to happen though I would say from about 2008 onwards when we rolled out this standardised model of education that we find ourselves in now in Australia, teaching really started to morph and change. And I found very quickly that the thing that was being squeezed out was the time. I didn't have enough time for my learners. I mm. didn't have enough time to build relationships. And and more than that, I didn't have enough time to do all this extra work that was being um, asked of us. So the professional the the national curriculum was being rolled out, professional teaching standards uh, were coming out, standardised A to E reporting was coming out, everything was being made standard. Mm. And whilst that can be all good and well, there was no time being allowed to get your head around all of these new standard procedures and policies. And more than that, there was so much work involved in all these standards and, and proving yourself against these standards so much work that, in fact, I started to find myself wishing the kids didn't come in. I just thought <laughs> I've got so much, I've got so much work to do. Yes, and these, I these could get it all done if there weren't any in. kids there in the classroom. Yeah, they keep coming into the classroom and really <laughs> disrupting all this work that I need to get done. And I was a very um, conscientious teacher, and when a directive was given to me, I took it very seriously. You know when. My principal said, this is being rolled out and this is what we need to do now. I I took that on board because I had great faith in, (laughs) it makes me laugh now, I had great faith in those above me um, and I thought if I'm being asked to do something, it must be worthwhile. And so I would really strive very hard to achieve all the things that were being asked of me. Mm -hmm. And uh, ultimately I found myself burning out. I found myself lying awake at night wondering what the hell I was doing to these kids. I was really having a moral and ethical dilemma about the work I was being asked to do, the way I was rushing them through things and hurrying them through things. Um, I found my demeanour was changing. I I didn't have the patience that I once had. And I started to realise that this job wasn't what I signed up for. It wasn't teaching as I knew it. And I I knew that really deeply within myself. And So in that moment when I when I burnt out and I I left the classroom I spent a good solid year just really feeling as though I'd been through some kind of trauma and it humiliates yeah. me it embarrasses me to say that because in my mind trauma is the domain of you know people who have experienced you know horrible oh, yeah. things but and it shouldn't you know it when yeah, it, you know, trauma and being a kindergarten classroom teacher shouldn't—they're not words that should go together. Yeah, but that—that that was actually my experience. And post leaving the classroom, that's how I felt as though I was recovering from, mm. you know, recovering from a job that 
really got away from me and turned into something that wasn't healthy for me or the students. Mm. Um, recovering from a very much recovering from a lost dream. You know, I had always yeah, thought yeah. that I would teach until retirement, and um, like I said, I was good at it. I know it's it's my calling in life. It's something that I'm meant to be doing. So there was a real recovery and a grief of yeah. of that experience. And then also just the recovery of the wear and tear that teaching takes on your mental health and, and on your body as well. Mm. So um, it's it's been um, almost, it's been 10 years since I was in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And Do you I'm starting to think, I'm starting to think maybe I'm a recovered teacher. <laughs> maybe the recovery is finished. That I sounds very healthy, I, Gabby. That sounds yeah, very healthy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still do miss it. I, I would say probably I grieve it because I don't miss teaching because I know if I went back into a classroom today, I'd probably die before recess. You know, the, the cl- <laughs> I, I know I, I know that that teaching, the teaching that exists today, it's not the teaching that I'm called to do. It's not the yeah. teaching I fell in love with. So I miss a romantic um, historical nostalgic version of teaching yeah. but I do grieve it because I was I was very good at it and I was yeah. particularly good at teaching kids to read yeah. I would um, teach kids to really fall in love with words and to fall in love with reading and writing and I don't think there's really any greater gift you can give someone than the empowering gift of being a good reader and I know I was so good at that and I have a lovely memory of a student that I taught his name was Sam and I remember when he went to high school his first day at high school his mum actually made a point of getting in touch with me via social media to tell me this that in his first English class he was asked to read something out loud and the teacher said to him "Uh, Sam you read so well and he said yes my my teacher taught me and the teacher said to him, and, and who was that? And he said, my kindergarten teacher, Miss Stroud. Oh, and I just it feel is just as though gorgeous. Are, yeah. And yeah. I feel as though there's a lot of kids out there that are very good readers and, are, you know, highly literate students yeah. because they came through my classrooms. And I know that that was yeah. something that I did and I did very well. So I miss that. I miss yeah. that I'm not giving that gift. And isn't isn't it a shame that you're not there, you know, you've obviously care, you care and Mm -hmm. you you probably maybe care too much (laughs) and and maybe um, uh, we need, you know, your kind of people in our schools and it's such a shame that schools are, um, you know, places where we can't work, you know, we can't Mm. do the job Mm. that um, we're meant to be doing. Gabby, I'm going to leave it there because we're going to break for some music and then I'm going to come back with a quote from a principal that uh, just makes me so mad. (laughs) You're listening to a podcast produced by Kiama Community Radio. Gabby, in one of your things that you wrote, um, you quoted a principal as saying, We are accountable to our students and our stakeholders. 
they're our clients. We provide a service and they're entitled to receive good service. We need to provide evidence of what we are doing here every day. Gee, I hate that kind of talk. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> this business approach is what parents and caregivers want for our kids. Why do you think our school system has got this so wrong? Oh, such a big question. Um, I know. Just just going back to that quote, though, you know, that the principal told me, um, he announced at staff meeting that we are accountable to our, our stakeholders and clients and all that sort of language. There's a real irony in that for me because I don't think there's a teacher out there that doesn't think that they're accountable. You yeah. know, when you've got... A, a young person in front of you and you're charged with the responsibility of teaching them something, that weighs quite heavily on teachers. We are naturally and intuitively quite accountable. We we yeah. want to do a good job. We want to meet the goals. This this idea of having to formalise that and document that and record that and measure that, it just seems absurd to me and really counterintuitive. It, it almost stamps out the fire that naturally occurs in a teacher to want to be accountable. Yeah. Um, I think that this business model of education, uh, look, how did we get here? We got here through a series of political decisions. We got yeah. here through things like NAPLAN and high stakes testing and standardised curriculum and all of that. It, it's it's policymakers and politicians um, making big decisions about a profession that they don't know anything about, that they've never engaged in. Yeah. Um, it's and to it go shows, further into I, it. I think, sorry, it shows a lack of trust in their teachers yes. as professionals and yes. as someone that can self-assess their own progress. Yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's it's done great damage to education too because it's really positioned parents as a consumer. So we're in this kind of almost a retail model of education now where the customer's always right and parents can come in and complain until they they have their perceived needs met, even if those needs are contrary to what a professional teacher knows is the right thing for that student. So it's this business model is really quite damaging and we just need to reach quiet acceptance of the fact that schools are not businesses. Yeah. Schools are schools. They're not, schools are not hospitals and they're not retailers and they're not insurance providers. Yeah. Schools are schools. They're just their own thing and we need to learn them and understand them and the value of a school just for what it is rather than trying to make it be like something else because it, it, it just, um, putting a business model on it means you've got to measure things and measuring learning is actually a really difficult thing to quantify and to compare because there's so many variables and the way yeah. we're doing it right now is really quite a crude way of doing it and it yeah. um, really it really discredits the the complexity of of a student and you know the nuances of learning and the impact of effort and also just the you know, cultural capital that various kids have or do not have. So yeah. there's so much more to just measuring learning than the results of NAPLAN. And, yeah, it's just really unfortunate that we've lost our way and, and, and just keep stumbling through this business model. In my mind, we're not going to 
ever have great success while ever a business model is what's imposed on education. I agree, totally agree. Look, I might I might even send this uh, interview to our education minister and say, listen to this. <laughs> Gabby talks such good sense. You should listen to this. <laughs> yeah, book- good, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Your book, Dear Parents, it's a funny, heartfelt and passionate series of letters written by a teacher to the parents and caregivers of her students. These letters shed light on the fundamental problems within Australia's education system and prompt parents to start asking the important questions. The letters also stand as a challenge to parents to recognise themselves as the first and lifelong educators of their children. That is so true. What would you say are the parents and caregivers' role in encouraging our kids to become lifelong learners? That's another really great question. I feel as though a terrific step that parents could take in encouraging their their children to become and to recognise themselves as lifelong learners would be for parents to respect teachers and to encourage their kids to respect teachers Mm. and to perceive or understand, recognise schools as being places of learning and growth Mm. I feel as though at the moment there's that quite a transactional expression or experience that parents are having um, in their relationship with the school you know here you take the kids and you do all the stuff while I go earn the money you know there's this kind of idea I'll I'll drop the kids off and you do that because I've got to go to work Mm. and I understand that. I understand the, the world we, we live in. Um, but what a shift it would be if parents were dropping their children off with the idea of what what I'm taking you to today is something really important and really yeah. special and there are teachers in there that are going to, you know, teach you things and put opportunities in front of you and grow you in particular ways. So take it seriously and do your best and show respect you know, yeah. I just feel that that little shift in thinking would yeah. have such a great impact in what was happening, in how students built their relationship with teachers, in how teachers felt about themselves, in how teachers and parents could cooperate to work together for that student to make, you know, really good gains in yeah. their learning. I really feel as though um, parents at the moment, many parents have lost their way a little bit and you know it's a difficult time to be a parent it is you, you know it's post-covid we, mm. we've just had our kids all believe that they, they could die in a minute you know covid yeah. was really scary for our yeah. kids and that's been a tough one for parents to negotiate and the other thing that's difficult for parents is screens and digital devices and technology that's really yeah. having a big impact on families and on how par- parents are able to relate to their kids yep. so It would be easy for me to throw parents under the bus and point to them and say that there's the problem. But I'm I'm a parent myself and I have a great sympathy for parents because I think it is a tough time to be a parent. And I feel as though the progress that I'd like to see happen will best come when, when teachers and parents engage in a really good conversation together with a shared understanding that the student in front of them is the person whose team we're all on. We all want really great things for this kid. Yeah. And if we could get back to conversations around that, 
I feel as though um, education would really start to shape up and, and be headed in a good direction. Yeah, totally agree, Gabby. I'm running out of Zoom time, actually. I've only got uh, about three minutes left. So let's talk about you coming to Kiama on the 31st of August. You're going to be talking to Ryan Buta at the Kiama Library about your novel, The Things That Matter Most. Can you tell us a tiny bit about Mm -hmm. that book before we have to go? Yeah, sure. So The Things That Matter Most is a fictional book and it's set in a school. It follows a cast of characters, teachers uh, and admin staff as they negotiate a school year. But we're also watching a young man named Lionel. He's a year six student who has some secrets of his own that he's hoping that these teachers, he's he's half hoping that they won't find out and the other half of him is hoping that they will find out. (laughs) And as a reader, we're, we're watching and reading with anticipation that these teachers will figure things out before it's too late for Lionel. This book reads a little bit like a day in the classroom. There's moments where you'll be laughing out loud and then there'll be moments where you think, oh my goodness, I'm now going to have a little weep. So it's a a bit of a roller coaster ride through the emotions, but I'm sure that teachers out there will find themselves in the pages. And I'm sure that readers will just think this is a great read. And I've always wondered what goes on in a classroom. So (laughs) I think there's something in there for everyone. (laughs) <laughs> like being a, fl- a fly on the wall uh, <laughs> inside mm, his cube. Yeah. Well, Gabby, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. It's been absolutely wonderful and good luck in the future with um, what you're doing. And I really hope uh, the people in power are listening to this conversation. It's it's important. Thanks so much for having me. And I look forward to seeing people at the Kayama Library and talking more about the things that matter most. That was Gabby Stroud with her thoughts on teaching and some issues teachers are struggling with at the moment. In a sneak peek into her latest work, a fictional story of the teachers, students and families at a rural primary school. It's called The Things That Matter Most. This podcast was produced by Kiama Community Radio.